and welcome to another episode of Nerds Amalgamated. I'm the professor and my co-host is the DJ. How are you enjoying this weather, DJ? Ah, uh, so, so gloomy. Man, I can't Did you get it. any of the hail? Yeah, it got some hail. It I've got, got some photos hail. from my friends. Luckily, um, I was out driving at the time. Luckily, we missed uh, most of the hail, but... I've got photos from my friends of this hail, like bigger than golf balls. I looked at I looked outside, and it was, some of them were like coming onto the ground, and it was it was like looking at bullets exploding on ground. Yeah, it looks cool, but it's frightening at the same time. I don't know. I've never like I don't think I've ever seen hail that big in person. Kind of glad I haven't because I hear it. Uh, it kind of just goes straight through your. Uh, your roof. Oh yeah. Well, it depends on what material you have though. If it's like yeah, like flimsy plastic sails kind of th- kind of material, then yeah, they can go through that in an instant. Yeah, I would not want to get caught in the rain in that. No, no. I hate to be. I, I hate to have your car outside that thing too. Yeah. Can you also believe it? Today, um, Sean Connery passed away. Yes, that's a. Uh... A sad one. No longer will Sean Connery ever play James Bond. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to go there. I know. Now I'm now I'm now I'm going to watch all those Simpsons episodes with um with with parody parody James Bond now. Yeah, well, you know he's a famous movie star. <laughs> Oh yeah, he he went yeah he went out he had a good run. I would say at ninety. Yeah, see, he made it to ninety. Yeah. But we should move on with our first science topic. <laughs> About the fungus eating bushes spider orchid. <laughs> I'm going to stop now. Yeah. The, um, the bustle spider orchid is a an orchid from Western Australia, which has a very limited range. And at one point, there were only four known specimens just a couple of years ago. But some scientists have managed to bring it back. So the plant grows, well, blooms for three to four weeks a year and needs to be hand pollinated because the um, yeah, the conditions just aren't right for it to pollinate naturally. And then you have to collect the dust-like seeds at just the right moment. So they've collected these seeds and then found out that they don't germinate without fungi. So they had to collect the fungi and work out how to grow the fungi as well. So they had to grow the funny guy? Ow. <laughs> yeah, so, so you grow the fungi and feed it to the plant. This is a fungus-eating plant. The orchid doesn't have a proper root system that would collect nutrients like a regular tree. So it collects the fungus and digests it. So and in other words, this is the Venus flytrap for mushrooms. Kind of. Yeah, it doesn't have any like outward predatory behavior. And the fungus isn't a mushroom. It's uh, just a, probably a, a single cell fungus. But the, um, so each plant can produce 34,000 seeds in a, in a seeding season. But in the wild, only one of the seeds is, will grow to a plant compared to the lab where they can grow 30 to 40% of the seeds, which is pretty insane. Can you imagine looking after like, you know, 10,000 plants? The, what's what's going to be funny though is um, imagine being the guy that's like, okay, I got to catch these seeds. Should not take my eyes off this. And then you miss it like, oh, <laughs> I missed it. No. Or just getting in there with your, your tools and then getting a bit of dust up your nose and a chew and... <laughs> The seeds are gone. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing? Oh. 
But yeah, the thirty like they said here, um, they get thirty to forty percent of the seeds to successfully germinate. That's like, those odds are very dire. Yeah, so like in the wild, only growing one one seed from a batch of thirty thousand is very dire because it needs these very specific conditions to grow. But you know, having uh, being able to cultivate. So many more seeds is a really good sign that they're going to be able to preserve the plant, even if they can't preserve it in the wild. It would mean that they'd be able to grow it in botanic gardens. So they can now uh, raise the plant for a couple of years and they're putting them back into the wild. Uh, so far, they've planted 140 and they're planning on planting hundreds more over the next um, year. But uh, they don't haven't been out long enough to know whether it's going to successfully thrive. Yeah. Well, it, it's a gamble to put them out into the wild after all these years because I'm seeing here they they need certain wasps wasps to uh, pollinate it. And yeah. yeah, like um, clover requires the European honeybee. There's a lot of plants that require a particular bug to pollinate them, and if that bug isn't present, the plant goes extinct. But I'm, you know, I'm really impressed by this, and I'm hoping they manage to pull it off because this is a, a lot of work, but. I think they've got a good chance of being able to return it to nature, uh, assuming that wasp is still common. And even if it isn't, they now have seed from, you know, uh, they found a total of seven uh, orchids in the end, in the wild, and they've collected seed from them, which they're preserving in the cryogenic seed banks. So even if it doesn't, um, doesn't work out in the wild, they still have that genetic material just in case. Well, I well in this current climate with, with the changing um, landscape, I think it is a good idea to save some. Yeah, and that's the reason for the uh, the Svalbard Seed Bank. the The Svalbard Seed Bank is actually more for uh, food crops. They said here uh, so far they managed to collect seed from seventy three percent of the states threatened orchid um, flora and saved in the cryogenic storage seed banks. Yeah, that's a that's a good number. Yeah. So even if we manage to mess up the entire forest and can't grow it in the wild anymore, having that genetic material saved is not perfect, but it's a hell of a lot better than losing it forever. My biggest concerns would be if they bring this back, will there be what's the right um is this the right genetic material or are there mutations within the plant? That's a good question, but with a um with with a wild population of only 7 plants, I don't think there's going to be much um there's not much option there to actually get a mutation of this species. Yeah. It's going to be a really tight genetic bottleneck for the next um I don't know, thousands of years, but uh seven plants is better than no plants, I keep saying. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine if Monsanto was to take uh, some of these seeds and genetically modify it. Don't give them any ideas. <laughs> I don't know what the like if there's any money in that. It's an interesting plant. It's pretty. Are you kidding me? Fungus it would be is a big pro- is a big problem. Yeah, well, this is different. It's unlikely that the fungus that it grows on is uh, going to be significant for economic crops. I think. Um, so fungus is important to crops. There's a particular fungus which fixes nitrogen that, uh, if I remember correctly, it grows on legumes. So you grow, uh, or is it not legumes, sorghum maybe? No, sorry, it's a bacteria. Ah, okay. Uh, but the thing is, um, yeah, nitrogen-fixing bacteria and legumes, you grow a, a legume crop in your field one year, 
which fixes nitrogen in the term is fixing nitrogen, which is basically regenerating the soil with um, with nitrogen that your next crop can use. So you cycle your crops, crop rotation. Uh, one year you grow legumes. Next year, you grow a crop that uses nitrogen. Next year, you might leave it fallow. And then next year, you're back to legumes. Okay. So, but this isn't the first case of a, um, of a microorganism growing on plants that the plants need to survive. But I don't think the, uh, I don't think the spider orchid fungus is going to be an issue for cold, well, economic crops. It might be an interesting study. You find out how it actually works and what the uh, what it actually does for the plant. Then you can maybe reuse it in a, a cash crop. But, you know, that's uh, some research that can be done now that the plant is, um, now that the plant's saved. You can use it as a, you can find out what, what it can do. Maybe you can make a medicine with it. Maybe you can use it to prepare the soil for a, another crop maybe it just looks pretty in the garden Mm -hmm. but if we let it go extinct we don't have any chance to find out how it works so yeah this is the this is a great thing saving the plants being able to keep them for the future yeah and hopefully don't turn into gigantic monsters yeah day of the triffids is my favorite zombie story (laughs) and it doesn't even have zombies i was thinking more the invasion of the body snatchers I haven't seen that one. Oh, you... I didn't know it was plants, though. I thought it was aliens. It's an al- It's both, actually. It's like an alien dust that comes from space and it turns into, and then it turns into the weird plants and the plants... Uh, it's a yeah, long, long story. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Um, Day of the Triffids is a really... Uh, you know, it is basically a zombie story. You've got the, the implacable enemy that just hunts you and a lot of the way they deal with it is the sort of thing you'd expect to see in a zombie story but that's another thing you have to be worried about like um you know like um movies like the thor and um the thing and stuff like can you imagine um viruses infecting the plant and making making crazy mutations (laughs) i think you're getting way into the realm of science fiction there yeah hey hey there, there are some, what's that line? Um, truth is stranger than fiction. Yeah, I don't think it's likely to be a problem, though. It does sound like a, a fun sci-fi movie, though. Ridiculously, horribly cheesy. <laughs> but we should move along to our next topic, the HTC uh, headset. So you probably know it better as the Vive. It's a VR headset that made by HTC, the phone company. Since uh, phone companies actually in a pretty good place to build VR headsets, they already have the infrastructure to produce low power CPUs, um, small, high, high PPI screens. But there is a, a new one. So HTC has had a couple of products, uh, the Vive, Vive Pro. Uh, they unfortunately split with Valve for the index, I believe. But uh, they um, they started to move out of the consumer space. But they do now have a, a plan to release a new one. Possibly it will just be for uh, commercial use. So this leak comes from a um, an FTC filing. The sorry FCC, Federal Communications Commission in the USA, responsible for basically keeping track of electronics that might emit electromagnetic radiation that is of concern to inter- for interference. 
But in this case, it um, Road to VR are hypothesizing that it's going to be a new model of the Vive Focus. And it might not actually come out as a consumer product, but I think any, any VR product is good for the industry. It should be good for the industry, but at the same time, it should be uh, affordable to the consumer. I mean, VRs, they are expensive as heck. Yeah, and you can't even buy the the Index, which is the sort of biggest and best uh, VR kit you can get. Isn't even available in Australia. And not to mention with, with the recent recent drama that's been going on with VR, like the Facebook saying that yeah. uh, you need a Facebook account to access our VR equipment. I mean, the hardware, so, is, coo- the hardware is cool and all, but software... Well, no, sorry. Software is an issue, but no one will make the software if the hardware isn't there. And this is an option that isn't owned by Facebook, which is important because having an option that isn't owned by Facebook is they will Facebook will do whatever they can to lock down the market. And a lot of VR fans don't want that because Facebook are notorious for being dodgy and hard to deal with. There are people who create new accounts to use their Oculus and get banned basically immediately. So we'll have to see how things go. See, it's either Facebook or Google that will get you, that will get you in the end. Probably. But Valve, uh, sorry, Google don't actually seem to want much in the VR space. Their VR entry is basically limited to units that use your existing phone. Oh, yeah, the Google Cardboard, hey. Yeah, Google Cardboard, uh and a bunch of other products that... So Google supports it on Android, but there are a lot of products that are made that are basically Google Cardboard, but made out of plastic with proper lenses and everything um, that you can get. And they're dirt cheap. The phones are obviously the most expensive part, but they are a decent way to sort of get get your toes wet. Yeah. Um, but Google doesn't seem to want to make high-end VR experiences. My uh, my other concern when it comes to HTC and stuff is like, while they are not locked down by Facebook or any of the other tech companies, you will come up moments where it's like, okay, I've got my HTC Vive and I want to check out this program. And all of a sudden this program is like, you can't access this program because you need a Facebook account. And you currently that's only true for the Oculus. Yeah. And if you own a, so the Oculus is the only product that has exclusives at the moment. You can hack it and play your Oculus games on a uh, on a Vive if you want to. But you know, I think at the moment you're better off avoiding it just because Facebook is probably going to lock down the store and make it harder. Not only that, though, it'd be also the fact that try it might involve uh, physically destroying your Vive in the process. Yeah. Uh, well. That's a good question about hacking your Vive. Currently, the software runs with no modification, but there is a group who have tried to jailbreak the uh, Oculus Quest 2, and they are making good progress. But often, if you want to jailbreak a product like that, you will have to mod it, hack into like you know, open it up, maybe solder on some wires, and reflash the software. So currently, I don't think you need to do that, but... You know, we'll see. Eventually, they probably will lock it down. So, what um, event? What other advantages have they put um, on the FCC on the FCC document for this Vive? It's hard to say because the uh, it's confidential. Currently, the only indication is that it might be a 
Vive Focus update, possibly with a new, um, you know, with higher higher performance parts. But uh, it's we'll probably have to wait for the full release to know what the details are. The good news is, though, if it is a Focus update, the Vive Focus is standalone like the uh, Oculus Quest. So it is a direct competitor to the Oculus Quest. Um, something like the Index, you also need a, a decently high-end gaming PC. So, you know, wait and see, but it's it's good to see there are options out there. Yeah. Options that will keep Zuckerberg from seeing what you do while you VR. Oh, man. I mean, Zuckerberg can go ahead. Anyone who wants to hack into my VR cameras and look at me while I'm in VR, frankly, you deserve what you get. <laughs> no, actually, shh, I'm... Don't say, shh, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> they have ears. Look, ears everywhere. Well, anyone who does happen to hack into my cameras or anything, and you deserve what you get. Look, just saying that, but I don't like the idea of anyone hacking me. But then what's interesting, though, is like we've been talking about um, Oculus and, um, and HTC. What about the other competitors that are involved in this? Like Sony, for example, they, they must be also looking at this going, ooh, what's this? I hope so, because uh, there hasn't been any news about PlayStation VR 2. And I think there should be a PSVR 2 uh, to go with the PS5. We'll see. Yeah, because we don't have much, don't we? We only have HTC, Oculus, um, Steam with their own VR. Is it Steam and Oculus together or two separate? Uh, Valve has their own thing these days. Yeah. Originally, Valve and HTC were a thing. They made the uh, the Vive headsets, then Valve split from HTC and made the Index. So, yeah, um, avoid the Oculus. This looks like it'll be a good option if it pans out. Uh, PSVR 2 is a something I'm looking forward to hearing about. I don't own a PlayStation, but the more you know, the more the merrier. We can only maintain the uh, the VR concept as long as people are using it. And I'd hate to see VR die off because people just aren't buying it. But next up, uh, what do you have for us this week, DJ? Okay, so I have a new comic book series coming out and is from the realms of Blade Runner. Okay, so what's this going to be? So this one is going to be called Blade Runner Origins. And this is set 10 years before the... uh, before Titan Comics um, Blade Runner 2019, which was a year-long comic book series. This follows the events leading up to the creation of the Blade Runner division. Reflecting on the world characters and events first seen in the films Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. So so basically another um, expansion of sorts. But it's going to be a prequel. So is this about the the founding of the uh, Tyrell Corp? Yeah, to a certain to a certain sense, yeah. So the story in this one is basically a senior biologist from the Tyrell Corp is found hanging in a sealed laboratory, the victim of an apparent suicide. Uh, LAPD detective Carl Moreau, I'm getting it wrong. Um, a uh, let me just the- find that for you. <laughs> I think it's just Moreau. Thank you. Moreau, a victim of the bloody off-world conflict known as Calanthia. I wonder if, uh, you know, I'm not up to date on my Blade Runner lore, but I wonder if Calanthia is where the, um, what's his name? Rutger Hauer's replicant? In the original movie, he does that speech about, um, you know, sea beams glittering off the shoulder of Orion and all of that. 
I wonder if that's the Calanthia conflict. The Calanthia conflict, that was in um, a show called Blade Runner 2022, and that one is an, that one's a one-shot anime. And Actually, that's Blackout 2022. Yeah, Blackout 2022, sorry. Yeah, Blackout yep. 2022. So this one was set three years after the events of Blade Runner. Okay. So this one's then set a few years after that, is it? Yeah. No, actually, no. Uh, Blade Runner Origins, 10 years before twenty Blade Runner 2019. How does this add up? So Blade Runner Origins set 10 years before 2019 would make it 20, 2009. But Calamphia was depicted in Blackout 2022. Must be some sort of flashbacks business. Yeah. So, uh, so the story for Blade Runner um, 2022 or is... It's the long time Blackout. Blade Run- yeah, Blackout. Saying Blade Runner. It's Blackout. It is, it's it is, it's Blade Runner Blackout 2022. That's how it's titled. Okay. Yeah, which is weird, but <laughs> so the plot for that one is basically so it's three years after the original Blade Runner movie. The Tyrell Corp has developed a new uh, Nexus Eight line of replicants who possess natural open-ended lifespans equivalent to that of the hu- regular human. This caused a massive backlash between the human populace who begin hunting down and killing replicants, seeing them as now a very credible threat to humanity. Interesting. I um, I really should get around to catching up on this. Yeah. Because also- uh, like Blade Runner is very different to, uh, to Android's Shroom of Electric Sheep. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't really into it to begin with, but you know, it's grown into its own thing. Yeah. Uh, by the way, with the Calanthia part, so one of the characters reveals uh, reveals that he was a soldier on the planet called Calanthia, but was okay. deserted when he realized that the enemy soldiers he'd been fighting and killing were also replicants. Well, that makes sense. If you can make a replicant who... Now, this is, you know, part of the philosophy of the story is, is a replicant human or not? What What is real? What is true? Is It all comes back to that core thought. Um, even in the original book. But it makes complete sense that both sides in a war would use replicants because they're cheap. They don't have families who love them. They're not a, you know, I don't think they're going to be a, there's going to be any good argument not to use replicants apart from that, you know, replicant rights angle. If you don't see the replicants as human, no reason not to use them. So, yeah, so... One of the so one of the detectives from that um, from that conflict is sent to write up quickly qu- quickly quietly and with the minimal amount of fuss cover up the incident basically. But something okay. doesn't sit right with the detective, and it soon becomes apparent that this is anything but a normal suicide. Did the scientists' um, groundbreaking research on Nexus model replicants somehow contribute to her death? And is the apparent disappearance of a prototype Nexus unit also connected to the case? Isn't this just the plot of the iRobot movie? That's what I was thinking too. <laughs> We've got That's the I- uh, yeah the guy who appears to have committed suicide, his research into androids, and a prototype android. <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? I, uh, I, should I ask? <laughs> oh man, not a terrible movie. Terrible adaptation. Look, if so, you're going um, in there expecting a faithful ab- adaptation of Asimov, you're not getting it. No. <laughs> uh, I will say this, though. Will Smith did play an interesting role in that movie. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so with this in mind, the, the Blade Runner universe is ripe with potential new stories. Exploring the first Blade Runner unit will will undoubtedly provide some serious mythos into the sci-fi universe. Oh, I like the sound of that. 
Yeah. Because uh, the, um, the existing stuff is all set after the, you know, after they start hunting and killing rogue replicants. So what uh, what reason do they, at what point did they decide that, you know, replicants were not, like, at what point could the replicants start blending in well enough that they needed to recruit Blade Runners? Concern for this movie, though, would be how much of uh, this... It's a comic. Oh, sorry. Even this comic, though, would be how many percent of that comic will be talking a lot of philosophy and how many percent of it would just be action? Because Is that a problem if it's talking philosophy? Eh, if it's done right. I mean, look at like look at Alien, for example, like with the recent Covenant and um, with Covenant and stuff. It was just philosophy. Philosophy was just tacked in. Mm, like yeah. it, just, it didn't really go That's nowhere. Sort of- that movie doesn't have any strong points, though. Yeah. The uh, the Alien sequels, well, the modern Alien movies, just don't have any strong points at all. The originals handled it much better. Yeah, same with Prometheus as well. Yeah, they, yeah, you're right. Yeah, they didn't really have a good strong point in it. Yeah, they weren't good horror. They weren't good action. They weren't good um, sort of philosophical sci-fi. But um, for this one, though, it was what's interesting is that uh, there have been several stories and short films have filled the gaps between the first and second, but this is the first that to go back and explore where it all began. Um, so this was going to be published by Titan Comics, and the book will feature creative talents from Mike Johnson, um, who worked in Star Trek and Green Lantern, Kate Perkins, uh, was worked in Super. Superwoman and Melo Brown, who worked in American Gods. And so Perkins and Brown expressed their excitement at working on the project, saying that they were fans of the property and they expressed particular excitement over expanding the Blade Runner universe and bringing new perspectives to it by telling the story of the first Blade Runner unit. Hmm. I mean, I get the whole idea of like, they want to bring in the excitement of telling the story, but I feel like the plot feels formulaic. I can see how you'd think that. It'll depend how they tell the story, I mean, especially the t- since it does sound very iRobot. Yeah. Can you imagine Tyrell Corporation go, we're saving, <laughs> we're saving from yourselves. We're saving from yourselves. And with the conspiracy, th- the conspiracy theory aspect is going to be, yeah, you're right. It's going to be iRobot, but then how much, how many of them would, how many of it would, is already copied in so many other franchises. Yeah. Now, this cover, though, what is yep. that shirt, like, top she's wearing? Why does she have a high collar with a window in it? <laughs> like, that window's just to show off her cleavage. <laughs> yeah, you're defeating the point. Why does she have, like, a clear plastic window in her high collar? Why is her collar even so high? How long is her neck? <laughs> <laughs> wow, it is really long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I wonder, oh wait, I wonder if she is the, yeah, it does look like she's the first replicant. Well, she, the prototype. Yeah, the prototype. Not the first, because uh, you said they, like, this is about the first Blade Runner unit, which implies that, you know, the first replicants weren't the perfect human copies that you see with the later Nexus models. Mm-hmm. It's not until presumably, yeah, you know, yeah, this is the pro. Yeah, this is the prototype Nexus. Yeah, yeah. So by the time uh, the original Blade Runner movie, now I might be confusing the details of the book a bit, but um, yeah, that's like the Nexus Six. You said uh, Blackout has a Nexus Eight, which is ne- uh, a yeah. human lifespan. Mm-hmm. Well, the Nexus 6 has a very limited lifespan. So presumably if this is before the Nexus 6, 
I don't know, she's a Nexus 4 model, maybe? Which, you know, if they can't get the model exactly perfect, that would explain the ridiculous neck. (laughs) (laughs) What is that neck? What is that neck? (laughs) And so uh, considering the Nexus 6 had a pretty short lifespan, she probably has like a really short lifespan. She's probably only in there for about five minutes. Yeah. The question, um, uh, what's interesting is going to be how much of the first... um, how will this affect the continuity of future Blade Runner movies? That's going to be an interesting yeah. one as well. I think the movies are going to be the primary canon, and anything that doesn't contradict that will be canon. Uh, interesting here, though. Um, the So that article from the uh, Blade Runner wiki, it says Nexus 4, sorry, Nexus 6 units lived for four years. Uh, the Nexus 4 and 5s would give up when cornered, which means that, um, the Blade Runner would basically just be an execution squad. If they don't have to, um, you know, if if they don't fight back, all the Blade Runner has to do is capture them. And then I assume they would kill them because, uh, well, that's an interesting question. Can the, it'll probably be answered, but can the early model, uh, early model, uh, sorry, Nexus models, can they kill their masters? Because the Nexus 6 models kill their masters when they escape. Oh. I mean, it could be, uh, I, I reckon Nexus 4 would be the first, could have been the president to do it. And Nexus 6 is just a copy of, of what Nexus 4 did. Yeah. I don't know. I've got to make time to rewatch these movies. Yeah. Director's cut, obviously. <laughs> God, the arguments over the, uh, the Blade Runner cuts. <laughs> How many are there? <laughs> like... Half a dozen. Oh, my. I thought the Lord of the Rings cuts were annoying. No, Lord of the Rings is just two cuts. Theatrical and director's. Hmm? Or extended cut. This, um, according to the wiki article here that you've... uh, The the Blade Runner wiki that you've linked, linked, sorry. There's the original version, the international cut, uh, a test preview, which was originally distributed as an unofficial director's cut, the Ridley Scott director's director's cut and then the uh ridley scott final cut (laughs) i mean what could possibly go wrong (laughs) yeah i think i've seen the director's cut i don't think um i had access to the final cut at the time but i think i'll track that version down do you have a preferred cut stick with the um with the director's cut okay yeah the the director's cut is it's all we it's all we've seen so far. I mean, like I would love to get the final cut myself. Ah, well. you go. Netflix's final cut. Ooh, nice. Yeah. So I don't know if I've seen the director's cut or final cut, but uh now final cuts on Netflix, so I'll be watching that one, I think. Yeah. One hour fifty seven movie minutes. It's a long one. <laughs> Can you imagine in Blade Runner twenty forty nine they make they, they give out more cuts? Well, yeah, interesting. Um, like, there's a whole uh, table on the wiki which I'm going to uh, drop into the show notes because that's uh, some interesting comparisons. Apparently, only the like, um, yeah, apparently Deckard's dialogue in the Abdul Ban- Ben Hassan scene is completely out of sync with his lips until the final cut. How do you mess that up? That up. Oh man! And the unicorn dream didn't turn up until director's cut. 
Mm-hmm. Now, I know the version I watched had uh, the Unicorn Dream, so it was either Directors or Final Cut. Yeah. Interesting um, interesting choices here. Uh, the Rory Batty, or Batty says, I want more life, and either ends the sentence with father or the F word, depending on the cut. And then uh, Pris is shot a different number of times, depending on the cut. <laughs> I wonder what causes those sorts of changes. Uh, Yeah, so we should uh, move along. One last question. Do you reckon um, Descartes is a replicant or not? Oh. (laughs) Oh. Yeah. I'm like that uh, that sweaty guy meme with two buttons now. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make me choose. I reckon the version um, I saw is, like, I mean, there's evidence either way, especially depending on the cut. I think, did Ridley Scott ever come out and actually say that Deckard is a replicant? I don't think he did, but but if he did, yeah. that would have that would have opened up a hole. Yeah, so Ridley Scott's uh, opinion is that Deckard is a, is a replicant, but there's also evidence that he's not a replicant. Yeah. So from what I've so this is three years ago he said on a podcast um, that whether whether or not Deckard's a replicant uh, yeah they are the director of, explains how shooting on twenty forty nine he met Harrison for to clear things up I said dude if you weren't a replicant the film you're about to do wouldn't exist so when audiences see the film it's essential to essential that in the present film he's a replicant yeah although in the book. Uh, Deckard is not a replicant because in the book there's a scene where he meets and I, I really recommend the book it's different a different enough you know different story different enough to be worth seeing as well as the movie um, but in the book he meets another Blade Runner like there's this whole conspiracy the replicants that he's hunting that turns out to be an entire sort of parallel police department run by replicants that the replicants use to support each other and help build each other's cover so that they don't get caught and he runs into the Blade Runner from that department and they test each other to make sure that you know they're both human. What, what's interesting, though, they asked that same question on in 2014 as well, <laughs> and this was really. You're speaking about real life now. Yeah, we're speaking real life now, right now. <laughs> I sorry. was thinking 2014. Is that a uh, a spinoff? Yeah, so in uh, 2014, here's an, here's an interesting one. So really, Scott says he's definitely replicant, and then uh, Scott goes on to. Uh, goes on to explain how elements of the film should tip the audiences off this fact they're paying attention instead of the unicorn dream sequence. The film star Harrison Ford never been able to get a straight answer about his character's true nature from Scott, but his own interpretation was that the character was human. Which he says, I was moved to I was moved to ask Ridley whether or not he thought the character I was playing was a replicant, Ford asked at a twenty thirteen event. Well, I never got a straight answer, which which is okay, I guess, but I thought it was important that the audience be able to have a human representative on film, somebody that they could have an emotional understanding of. Ridley didn't think that was all that, was all that important. <laughs> Interesting. So, I don't know, he's chopping and changing the answers, which is weird, but okay. Yeah. I mean, it's 
I mean, so it... basically, Harrison Ford thinks he's human. Ridley Scott thinks he's a replicant. Interesting, uh, interesting choices there. I think he's just trolling us at this point. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, yes, we should move it along. Uh, so we will take a short break for an ad here and be back with the games and the events of interest. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right, DJ, what have you been playing? I've been playing nothing. Why? <laughs> hey. All you had to do was play a game. Couldn't even manage that. Hey, hey, you try, you, you try, um, you try working all day. <laughs> Tell me how that, how that feels. <laughs> I, I, I've just been playing like small snippets of Among Us and I'm just like, yeah, that's all I can do. All right. And I'm still playing uh, Metro Exodus. You, you're loving that game a lot, aren't you? I am. I love the changes. <laughs> I love the uh, open world aspect. I love that, you know, the world feels alive. And that's hard to do. Like, it, it, it just feels good. And seeing enemies go about, you know, they're fairly basic routines, but seeing packs of enemies move around or the level I'm on at the moment is set in a desert. And there's one type of enemy, which is basically a zombie. It looks like the vampires from the movie of I Am Legend, um, but it's basically a zombie. I wasn't a big fan of the addition because uh, all the other enemies are unique, but I absolutely love the level of detail put into their life. So I've gone into a building and found them like hugging a wall to stay out of the sun. Because I remember you were saying the other day um, as well uh, that with the level designs, what the interesting part about it is how it's always someone getting kidnapped. Yeah, I did complain about that. That um, So the character Anna, in the previous game, she was pretty independent. In this one, she's still pretty independent, but uh, so... It's like three of the four or five levels that I've played so far. She gets captured. First one, she uh, gets captured. When you both get captured, you get left for dead. She gets captured and taken away. You break in and rescue her. Later on, she gets um, gets lost and you have to find her where she's been injured and trapped and you rescue her again. Then she gets kidnapped again. <laughs> it kind of feels like they're taking the piss. But they've got this... Um, whenever, let me guess, whenever she gets kidnapped, it's game over, huh? No, you have to rescue her. It's part of the plot. Ah, uh, okay. So there's no way to stop her being kidnapped. And it kind of just feels like they're taking the piss because they've got this character who's pretty strong and independent. And I know that, you know, rescuing people is what your character does. Part of the, the morally good endings, because the games have a moral system, which isn't always clear, uh, but... One thing that will always get you a good point is rescuing people. Um, so finding, you know, rescuing slaves or prisoners. But I feel like they're taking this character who has been strong and independent and then taking the piss because you keep having to save her life, which is a shame because I really like all of the characters and the plot so far. 
I just think it's a bit silly that she gets captured so much. For a second, there, you, what you were saying about um, Anna just reminds me of uh, um, Resident Evil, where you have to uh, where you have to uh, protect this woman, and if she gets captured by the zombies, uh, it's game over. And yeah, that's uh, always a pain. <laughs> but it's like, um, yeah. So the only Resident Evil I'm really familiar with is Number Two, and you know how. You can play as both characters, but um, the female lead, like if you, depending on which you play as, you run into the other character as appropriate. It's kind of like the female lead is, you know, independent and strong and fights for herself. But it's kind of like if you were playing as the male lead and you see her fighting her way through the first half of the game, and then you have to keep rescuing her. <laughs> this one's um, the Resident Evil I'm talking about is Resident Evil Four. Like you have to rescue um, Ashley, who is the president's daughter. <laughs> yeah yeah and okay. every time yeah it's always if you have to save her every single time and if you, if she gets kidnapped by a zombie well she's gone mm-hmm. yeah so i'm still a big fan of the game i you know it's not turning me off the game i'm just a bit disappointed that they they have a pretty good you know their stories are usually good and this feels a bit um it feels a, a bit on the nose have you have you also got the expansions as well I do, but they come later. So um, I suppose, actually, I know one of them, I think, is a prequel about one of the characters. I don't know about the other one. So the first one, from what I'm seeing, is so the first one is focusing on Colonel Claire Brignov. Yeah, I'm not aware of that character at all. But the other one is Sam's story. And I'm assuming that's a prequel about Sam, who is one of the uh, the Rangers in Metro Last Light. Sorry, Metro Exodus. I don't think he's mentioned in the first two games, but he um, he's a Yankee in Russia after the world just ended because of nuclear war, and he joins the um, the Rangers. So I'm assuming the uh, I'm assuming it's a, a prequel about that. Uh, Sam's story it takes place after the events of Exodus. Okay, then. I'm absolutely wrong. <laughs> okay, well, yeah, so that's, um, yeah. Um, I know you, sp- you spoke heavily on the, um, the problems, of, uh, problems of, this games, of this game. Did you find any new problems for this game as well? Or? Uh, no, I don't think there's no sort of new, um, new issues I can think of that I haven't mentioned. I, have a, I think there's a fair way to go for the plot, though. So we'll we'll see where I go and what happens next. I'll probably check in again in a couple of weeks and let you know how it goes. But I absolutely love the um, how how immersive these stories are. So moving on to our shout outs. On the 15th of October, it was the 30th anniversary of Monkey Island. So these are famous <laughs> games. I'm sure everyone's heard of them at least in passing but uh they a series of games by LucasArts um they originated with The Secret of Monkey Island in 1990 and featuring the fan favorite character Guybrush Freepwood hell of a name <laughs> and they had a really interesting um so back in the day games came with interesting uh, anti-piracy things often it would be looking up a something in the manual so for june 2 it would be a it would tell you look up in the manual the like attack value for this unit and um yeah they have uh they have dial a pirate which is a a disc shaped thing that you can rotate the inside and have to match up 
certain parts of it to get the key to unlock the the piracy protection. And they uh, they do have a remastered special edition, which you can play on Steam and switch back at any time to the original graphics. On the 26th of October 2020, it was the 20th anniversary of the Tekken Tag Tournament on PlayStation 2. Now, you're more into the fighting game scene than I am, DJ, so what's special about this one? It was just a... It's a very competitive game. Um, It features all the characters from Tekken 2 and Tekken 3. Um... It was just it, it's the ta- it it's the tag um, mecha- it's the fine mechanics from the old Tekken games brought into the PS2 and it was fun like just um, button mashing galore. Okay, that's the short end of it. <laughs> <laughs> and on the 26th of October, it was I say the 36th anniversary of the original Terminator movie, which I'm sure everyone knows. Uh, Arnie Schwarzenegger plays a robot assassin traveling back in time to murder the parents of a future resistance leader. And it's also one of the only two good Terminator movies, because I don't think I've heard a single good word for anything since then. (laughs) Not even the recent uh, Terminator movie that came out. What was it? Uh, Dark Fate? Oh, man. Did people like that? Nope. (laughs) It was... there were so many things that went wrong in that movie. You there just want to go, why, why? <laughs> I, w- I would love to say that in the newest one, there was a big, big twist that, that just turned up a lot of people. <laughs> I feel like since they're I, um, uh, time travel movies, everything is attempting to have a big twist. It's, but, not only yes. the big, it's not only the big twist. It's basically they're trying to tear down what they're, they're trying to tear down what was popular in the first one and try and use trying to try and use the legacy of the first one to fail. Yeah, to prepare. Yeah, they're failing it quickly in the process as well. Ah, <laughs> oh. yes. Um, so onto the remembrances on the 26th of October 1945, Alexei. Krylov. Alexei Nikolaevich Krylov, the Russian naval engineer, applied mathematician, and memoir, memoir, memoirist. <laughs> <laughs> In 1878, he entered the Naval College. I'm not going to pronounce that in Russian because I can't read Cyrillic. And graduated <laughs> with distinction in 1884. He did his first scientific work with Ivan de Colong on deviation of magnetic compasses. So the theory of magnetic and gyro compasses fascinated for him for all of his life. His published works related to the dynamics of the magnetic compass and proposed the dromoscope, a device that would automatically calculate the deviation. So with a compass, it doesn't actually point north. It points the magnetic north. And depending on where you are on the world, that's a different value. So if you really care that to travel true north your maps will often have a, a note on them telling you what the deviation is for that region but um it's mostly important on sort of small scales to make sure you and anyone you're communicating with know what uh what deviation you're using because if you are using magnetic north and your friend is using true north you're gonna have a bad time <laughs> He also pioneered the gyro compass, created a theory of damping ship rolling and pitching, and proposed gyroscoping damping to con- combat the roll. He wrote about 300 papers and books spanning shipbuilding, magnetism, artillery, mathematics, astronomy, and geodesy. His ship floodability tables are used worldwide. He also published the first Russian translation of Newton's uh, Principia Mathematica. 
He died at 82 in Leningrad. On the 26th of October 1957, Gerti Teresa Cori, an Austro-Hungarian-American biochemist, in 1947 was the third woman to win a Nobel Prize in Science and first woman to win one in physiology or medicine for discovering the course of the catalytic, catalytic conversion of glycogen. She received the award with her husband, Carl, and Argentine physiologist, Bernardo Husay. The cycle of glycogen is now known as the Cori cycle. In 2008, the US Postal Service published a stamp featuring uh, the Cori's, but it had a printing error in the chemical formula. Um, formula for glucose 1-phosphate, also known as Cori Ester. And the supercomputer, uh, NERSC 8 supercomputer at Berkeley Lab is also named after her. In 2016, it was the fifth most powerful supercomputer on Earth. She died of myosclerosis at 61 in Missouri. On the 26th of October 2007, Arthur Kornberg, an American biochemist who won the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine in 1959 for his discovery of the mechanisms in the biological synthesis of deoxyribonucleic acid with Dr. Severo Okoa of New York University. He died of respiratory failure at 89 in Palo Alto. On to the birthdays, on the 26th of October 1945, Nancy D. Griffith, the American computer scientist who was notable for her work on the feature interaction problem. Now, the feature interaction problem is a software problem where one feature interacts with another in a way that changes what the feature does and is the absolute bane of doing any sort of complex systems. It was first documented as features were added to telecommunication systems. She researched the problem of testing the networks to see how well they work together. On the 26th of October 1947, Ricardo Ash. Ricardo Hector Ash was an obstetrician, gynecologist, endocrinologist, and fugitive. Interesting career. <laughs> he pioneered gamete intrafallopian transfer, aka GIF. Oh, in the mid so no, 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 GIF? No, I heard you wrong once. It's not GIF, it's GIFT. <laughs> It's gift, not gift. <laughs> In the mid-1990s, he was accused of removing ova from women without consent for use on other, other, pra- other patients, <laughs> as well as associated financial crimes at the University of California. So at least 15 live births resulted from the practice. At the time, it wasn't legally considered a crime, but civil lawsuits were fi- filed and the university paid out $27 million to settle claims. In 2004, he was arrested in Argentina, but an extradition request was denied. He was arrested again in Mexico in 2010. Now, the, uh, he is now a free man as the judge ruled that as he had been tried in Argentina and acquitted, the double jeopardy rule applied and he could not be extradited to the United States. He was born in Buenos Aires. I bet that he, he's, he's long dead by now. Well, he made it this long, but, you know, that would upset a lot of people. It's a yeah, it's a big crime. It doesn't sound like it, but I think it's a colossal crime. And you're right. I wouldn't be surprised if people were out to get him. And that's why he doesn't come back to the US. But uh, at the same time, you know, he's made it this long. I don't think anyone's looking for him internationally. So we'll see. He's getting pretty old, though, so um, maybe he naturally won't last too much longer. 
And on the 26th of October 1959, we have Paul Farmer, an American medical anthropologist and physician. He holds an MD and PhD from Harvard, where he is the Coloca Trones University Professor and Chair of the Department of Global Health and Social Medicine. He co-founded Partners in Health, a nonprofit that provides direct healthcare and research and advocacy for those who are sick and living in poverty. He is also a special advisor in the United Nations and has pioneered novel community-based treatment strategies. Their work is documented in a range of uh, well-respected medical journals, and he is known as the man who would cure the world. He was born in Massachusetts. Surprised they haven't given him a Nobel Peace Prize at this point. Yeah, well, there's the problem with the Nobel Peace Prize and the Nobel Prizes is that you can only really give out one prize a year or however many a year it is. And you can't, you know, there's a lot of people who deserve the prize, I think. So you can't really say, you know, um, everyone who deserves against the prize in this year we're awarding 500. Hmm. On to the events of interest. On the 26th of October, 1881, the shootout at the OK Corral occurred. This is the famous shootout between the Earp brothers and the Clanton McClory gang. At about 1.30 p.m. on October 26th, the um, members of the, the gang ran into Doc Holliday, who was delighted to inform him that their brothers had been pistol-whipped by the Earps. Frank and Billy left the saloon vowing revenge, and at 3 p.m., uh, five members of the gang were in a vacant lot behind the OK Corral when the Earps spotted them. The gunfight lasted 30 seconds, 30 shots were fired, and it's debated who fired the first shot, but it is believed to be Virgil Earp who pulled out his revolver and shot Billy point-blank in the chest, and Doc Holliday fired a shotgun at Tom McClary. When the dust cleared, Billy Clanton and the McClarys were dead, Virgil and Morgan Earp and Doc Holliday were wounded. The remaining members of the gang had run for the hills. The local sheriff charged the Earps and Holiday with murder, but a month later they were found not guilty, the judge ruling that they were fully justified in committing these homicides. Interesting bit of um, vigilante justice there. Hmm. And on the 26th of October, 1689, General Piccolomini of Austria burnt down Skopje to prevent the spread of cholera. He died of the disease himself soon after. The great irony, especially since uh, cholera is caused by dirty water, as we now know. <laughs> the population of the city declined from 60,000 to around 10,000, and it lost its regional importance due to the fire. On the 26th of October, 1984, an infant received a baboon heart. Dr. Leonard L. Bailey performed the first baboon-to-human heart transplant, replacing a 14-day-old infant's uh, defective heart with the healthy heart of a young baboon. The infant, known as Baby Faye, was born with hyperplastic left heart syndrome, a deformity that is almost fatal and found in newborns in which parts or all of the left heart is missing. Three other humans had received animal heart transplants, but none survived longer than three and a half days. Ultimately, Baby Faye died after 20 days. Aww. Yeah, it's a sad case. Unfortunately, it's uh, experimental medicine because she wasn't going to make it either way. But... I wonder how many ethics committee meetings occurred after that whole event. Yeah, that's um, an interesting question. I mean, the patients, well, the parents of the patient consented. Uh, but uh, yeah, you do need to have ethics committees sign off on this sort of stuff because you don't know that it's going to work. And in some cases, um, like there are, there is a law that lets you have exemptions for it. 
because in some cases the condition is so terrible that anything would be an improvement. Uh, in some, but you also need to protect people whose lives could be made worse by the treatment. So it's you know an interesting ethical question. At what point do you allow people to take volunteer for experimental treatments in the hope that their condition will improve? But that's all we have for this week. So oh, you, you, hold up, hold up! You forgot the final event of interest. Yes. The uh, f- the movie five. <laughs> oh, oh, you didn't put that in the show notes, did you? I did. You didn't do it until right a minute ago. <laughs> you sneaky bugger. <laughs> On the 26th of October, 1951, the movie five premiered in Finland. Five is an independently made American post-apocalyptic sci-fi movie. It was a, the premise is that the world is destroyed in a nuclear holocaust. Only five Americans survive, including a pregnant woman, a neo-Nazi, a bank, black man, and a bank clerk. And a mysterious fifth person who we haven't been able to find the identity of. <laughs> So basically, it's 2020, the movie. Feels like it. That feels like a, a decent cross-section of 2020 society in America. Yes, but that's all we have for the night. So um, where, where can they find us, DJ? Um, they can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Spotify, iTunes. Um, they can also find us on thatsnotcanada.com, where we have an archive of our old episodes. And they can find some new That's Not Canon podcasts there as well. New ones, such as Two Geeks, Different Street. Different Streets. Sorry. So this is a, a new nerd-related rela- nerd um, podcast series looking at comic books. Yeah, so it looks like a fun one. And the, the title comes from them both being, uh, well, being friends who grew up in different places. But they also happen to be friends from different sides of the comic book divide. The great war between uh, DC and Marvel. <laughs> It never ends. It never And it can never end until comic fans decide the comics actually suck and it games are where it's at. <laughs> you heard me, DJ. <laughs> oh, I heard you. I'm just wondering if those guys will hear you. <laughs> Fight me. <laughs> they can um, also find us on Pod Hero as well. Yes, on Pod Hero for $5 a month. They can support us and other That's Not Canon podcasts with their subscription being divided between the podcasts they listen to. So we will see you next week. Look after yourselves. Stay hydrated. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.